0: Welcome to the Blueprint for Better Business podcast, hosted by me, Charles Wookie. 11 years ago, I co-founded the charity A Blueprint for Better Business with the aim of helping create a better society through better business. I ran it for 10 years, working mostly with leaders of large companies who for their own reasons have sought to transform their businesses to become purpose-led. In this series, we're speaking to some of these leaders and change makers and explore the realities of creating purpose-led businesses. This is always both a personal and organizational challenge. So the conversations explore both the personal motivation of these leaders, as well as what they've done and learned in their leadership roles. In different ways, they're all pioneers of a way of thinking and acting, which releases the latent potential of people and puts business at the service of creating a better world. But the stories are always personal and different. My successor, Sarah Gillard, and I have found them all inspiring, and we hope you do too. If you enjoy this podcast, please take the time to leave a review. It helps others to find it. Thank you. In this episode, I'm speaking with David Blood, founder and senior partner of Generation Investment Management. David has had a remarkable career in investing and is a globally recognized and respected leader in sustainable investing. Before co founding Generation Investment Management with Al Gore, he headed up Goldman Sachs asset management practice globally. I wanted to talk to David to find out more about his journey and the work of Generation, which is such a pioneer in such a crucial area. We're going to start in the usual way as I'm doing these conversations by asking David a little bit about him and what's driven him to do what he's done, and then we'll move on to talk about generation. So, David, welcome. Thank you so much for giving me your time. David, why do you do what you do? Well, I'm glad you start with the, the hardest question of all. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I think it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to get to your question, but I'm going to also get there by way of, uh, of answering some of your other questions that we've been chatting about. The first thing to say is that I am in finance by accident. I did not aspire to be in the investment business, the investment banking business, or, or anything in finance when I was growing up or even in university. In fact, when I went to university, I wanted to be a teacher or mm-hmm. a forest ranger. And the university I went to in America, they discontinued the education department in my second year. And so I had to look around for another discipline, another major, And and in fact, I chose child psychology, which as it turns out, has been the perfect degree to manage investment bankers and (laughs) investment. But when I was graduating, I didn't have a job. And my father basically phoned me up and said, you know, you can't come home, You, you need to get a job. And he said, you should apply to banks, because banks will hire people like you. And I have to confess, even to this day, I'm not sure that that was a compliment, the, the higher people <laughs> like you. Uh, but I did apply to 70 banks in the United States. Uh, this was in the early 80s, and I was rejected by uh, 69 of them and got one offer. So I'm completely in finance by accident. It was the only job I could get coming out of uh, university. And it turns out that that I was pretty good with numbers, and I've had, ai think, a, a successful a career in finance but my interests have always been in teaching it's been in social justice it's been in the environment And I would say that I've been very fortunate to ultimately work in a firm that allows me to be mission-driven, focusing on that, people and uh, the challenges of climate, the challenges of biodiversity, and the challenges of social justice and and poverty. So I I do what I do because it's fun, it's interesting, and it can have an impact. And and I feel very blessed to be able to, to
0: say that. Thank you. What an amazing story. So did you as it were, have to put your wider social passion and concern on hold in the early stages of your banking career. How did you keep them alive? Because sometimes I meet people who say, well, I want to do good, but I want to do that in 20 years time and I made a little of money. And for the moment, I'm just going to concentrate on the money and then I'll do good. Well, it's an
1: interesting question. And we could probably get into this a little bit uh, as we chat this morning. So the first thing to say is I've ever, never, ever focused on remuneration. It's not something that I think about. So I did not join uh, Goldman Sachs because I thought I would make a lot of money and that I would, could be a partner there, et cetera. I joined Goldman Sachs because I thought the culture of the organization was amazing. This was, again, in the early 80s. And I liked finance. It turned out that while I didn't study it when I was uh, growing up, I thought I had no interest in it. it. It turns out that I, as I said, I understood it mm. and I you know. Well, yeah, I still do very much. I enjoy finance uh, immensely. But I, I chose Goldman Sachs because of the culture and the values, the business principles of the organization. And so for me, the early part of my career was really based on could I imagine working in an organization that had the, the same values and, and culture and, and mission? And yes, I could imagine it. And that's why I went to Goldman Sachs. I don't think having had some earlier experiences where the organization did not share my values or how I like to work, I realized that those sorts of organizations were not for me. And so my decision to go to Goldman Sachs was based on, understanding the culture and finding an organization where the culture and how it wanted to operate was consistent with what was important to me. Now, it is also true that some financial firms, many of them in fact, are not as mission-driven as Generation. And I think it's a fair question to say, well, if you knew what you know today, would you have joined Goldman Sachs as opposed to starting Generation? And the answer is, of course, I couldn't have started Generation. In 1985, Mm when I joined Goldman Sachs because I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the experience. And so I feel very blessed to have worked at Goldman Sachs for 18 years, was able to uh, develop my corporate finance skills, my investment management skills, my business building skills, and then in a position with six others because it wasn't just me who found a generation. There was the total of seven of us to establish generation. Now I've worked a generation longer than I worked at Goldman Sachs, but I don't think we could have done what we've done at generation if I didn't have the experience and uh, the knowledge that Goldman Sachs gave me. Right.
0: So let's go on then to, to talk about generation. So why did you start generation? I mean, could you not have done what you're doing within goldman what was the thought process that led you to say actually we want to start something
1: well the the first thing is uh, i mentioned a, f- a few minutes ago that i was a very committed to the culture of goldman sachs as business principles and the fact that it was a private company
0: yeah
1: and goldman sachs went public in 1998 right. and i was one of the partners who voted to stay private so right. i was sad <laughs> that goldman sachs went yeah. public It was a matter of time before I I felt like I wanted to to do something different. I felt I had commitment to my colleagues. I was the head of Goldman Sachs Asset Management for those years, and I did have a commitment to my colleagues and, of course, our clients. So I stayed with it. But it it was clear to me that I was going to go do something different. And as time went on, it became clear starting a firm like Generation was what I wanted to do. And it, it really goes back to the the first question of why I do what I do, it became clear to us that the challenges of sustainability were increasing and that the capital markets were too short-term oriented to address them and that we needed to develop a different approach to allocating capital. Now, you could say, and I think you probably were just asking, if you were the CEO of Goldman Sachs and management, why didn't you just do it? And the answer is, In 2003, when I retired from Goldman Sachs, the whole question of sustainable investing and ESG, it really wasn't on the radar screen. There was ethical investing, there was responsible Mm -hmm. investing, but the whole uh, genre of sustainability really had not been developed at that point. And so the idea of trying to convince a very large organization of Goldman Sachs asset management that we should fundamentally shift seemed like a pretty tall order. And because it was new, I concluded that it was best to try to basically, in an entrepreneurial setting, create an opportunity to, to make those changes, to think differently about how you allocate capital and to explain it differently in terms of, of how we develop our clients. And so it was just, it worked better to try to do it independently. Uh, we were lucky that we've been able to be as successful as we've been uh, for sure. I think there's been a little skill too, but uh, we, we started at the right time and were able to deliver some very strong investment results early on. And that allowed us to to build that momentum and build the firm into a, a pretty interesting business. So it was a bit of timing and, and luck in that respect as well. But the, the notion of trying to churn a very large organization around mm. in a timeframe that I, I felt we needed to do it, we just concluded that that was too challenging. And one of the, the questions that we often get is, well, why, why aren't there more firms committed to sustainable investing, given that you've been successful? And the answer is because it's really, really hard. (laughs) It's hard to deploy capital from a sustainability perspective. There are trade-offs. You make judgments all the time in investing generally, and and certainly do in the sustainable investing field. We get plenty of things wrong along the way, but the whole approach is, uh, we think, uh, a superior way to do it. And the freedom to, to operate within that construct has been been helpful. And I think bigger organizations don't have the freedom. And that's why it's been, been harder for some bigger organizations to make the change that they will ultimately need to make to invest sustainably.
0: Well, I, I mean, I was going to come on to this, but as you've raised it now, let's just pursue this a bit more because it's a fascinating question, I think. So when you say they haven't got the freedom, what kind of freedom would need to exist, say, in the current Goldman Sachs asset management, in order for them to be able to do what you've done. I mean, the fact that it's difficult, you know, you you get a, a bunch of very smart people who understand and love finance, and you've done it, you've proved the thesis that this is possible. I mean, is it just that it's you've hoovered up all the really good examples, and you've invested in them all, so there isn't, you know, it's just harder to find lots of others? <laughs> no, no, that's
1: not the case. But, but the
0: point is that
1: to be a good investor, you need to develop philosophies and processes. And and by the way, Goldman Sachs Asset Management uh, then and, and today is a very, very large organization, multiple strategies, multiple people, and in multiple investment uh, processes, by extension, multiple investment processes. And so there's an awful, and that's true for all the major investment firms in the world who are slowly but surely turning to sustainability and ESG. And, and some of the most important ones in the world are talking about it in delivering sustainability or ESG-based strategies. But it's it requires... A real consensus around the value of sustainability or how to think about sustainability. And we think of sustainability as, as the drivers of economies that are increasingly important, interlinked, and will become even more important in the years ahead. So issues like climate change, biodiversity challenges, water challenges, fairness challenges, inequality challenges, Uh, health challenges. These are issues that are driving economies and public policy and are relevant to business and understanding them is absolutely critical. And then we use environmental social governance factors to help us uh, understand the quality of business and quality of management. And that's, that's the framework that we've developed. But to develop that framework and develop that philosophy and to execute on it requires consistency of of values, if you will. And so we like to say we always want diversity of thought, but we don't want diversity of values and beliefs. And to get that consensus in an investment team of 2,000 is not straightforward. In an investment team of 25 or sort of 10 when we start a generation, that's doable. And that's ultimately the challenge that these organizations face and and so that you start with one or two strategies and you build out and in some ways that's what we've done but it's really aligning belief sets if you will and asking Mm. the hard question from an investment perspective is do you believe that long-term investing is best practice, that sustainability is a driver of economies, and that ESG are tools to help you make better investment decisions? That's our philosophy. And if an investor believes that, then they will have a, a terrific career Generation. If they're not so sure, then they shouldn't come. And that's the kind of passion and framework you need to build an investment process. And as I said, it's just challenging to do that in the bigger organizations because this is tricky.
0: Okay. So this is so interesting because I, and I know you and I have talked before about how to think about the relationship between sustainability and purpose. And I've come away from our dialogues thinking, okay, well, when David talks about sustainability, he's using the word sustainability to mean just the same thing that I mean when I talk about purpose and being purpose-led, that it's, it's about the core identity of the business and what it's pointing to. Is that right? Am I misunderstanding our conversations?
1: No, no, no. We've 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 always been aligned, and I guess I probably would say not so much sustainability, but mission. So Generation is a mission-driven organization. Yeah, okay. our mission yeah. is twofold: to deliver strong investment results for our clients, and secondly, to promote sustainability in the capital markets. People work at Generation for the latter, actually, the mission, but they know that if we don't deliver strong investment results. Uh, we will be um, not particularly good advocates for sustainability. If you're (laughs) an investor, no one's going to really care what you think. If you can be consistently strong as an investor, then your voice is is magnified. And that's why we found that our mission, which is sacrosanct, we're B Corp, this mission-driven, purpose-led, as you would say, that's why people work at Generation, but it doesn't take away the commercial imperative of excellence. we have to have which is true for all of the businesses that you you have worked with over the years
0: i'm sure it is it is so let's just go back so the six of you get together to found generation and what i'm hearing you say is that actually what united you all was a shared set of beliefs and values about what you wanted to try and create and achieve together as investors is that right well that's it that's
1: absolutely right but there's two things there the one was a shared mission, if you will. But then we yeah. spent a lot of time talking about what are the the core values of our firm and how do we wanna work together? And you could have the same mission as, as we have a generation but have a different culture. And so we wanted to be sure we agreed the mission and we started together. There's seven of us actually started together with that mission and vision, although we probably refined it over the years a bit. But then we also spent time on the core values and, and how we wanted to work together, because we knew very well, coming back from my Goldman Sachs days, that culture mattered and how you work together, how you treated each other mattered. And that has led to a number of business decisions we've taken over the years, including limiting this, the size of our firm, because we wanted to ensure that we had this sense of teamwork and camaraderie and shared passion that you can get in a boutique, but it's harder to do in a bigger organization isn't that interesting
0: so what's the size what's the maximum size well good
1: question actually we're debating this all the time we we think it's something like 150 people and i guess that comes So the dunbar, from, the
0: dunbar number
1: yeah well there's
0: 140 or 160 i don't know but it's Around, uh, yeah in, it's in that range 52 of them that's fascinating and you are you pretty much there now have you got to that well, it depends on how you count it. Um, so Generation,
1: There's we have three different uh, entities. We have Generation, which is 110 people. We have Just Climate, which is 30 people, and the Generation Foundation, which is uh, five people. So if you add all that up, we're still below 150. But uh, we're right. getting close. Right.
0: So let me just ask you, I mean, it's very interesting hearing that because that raises a quite interesting question about whether it's possible for very large organizations to move in the kind of direction that charities like Blueprint and the B Corp are trying to encourage businesses to do, because if this is fundamentally about the alignment of belief and values in service of a very clear mission or purpose, which we both believe, I think the question becomes, how do you actually do that in a large organization? So, are you skeptical about the potential of large businesses to do the kinds of thing that you've done?
1: No, 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 Charles. I'm glad you're, you're asking this question because I, I hope I haven't misled you. So this is what we chose. We chose it because that's how we wanted to work together. Um, we wanted to know everyone's partners, for example. We want to know their kids. We want. We all had come from, well, we'd all come from bigger organizations and chose to do this differently. So we like the notion yeah. of a boot because of of how we could work together. That was the decision. Now, do I think you can build in a great culture of 10,000 people or even 100,000 people? The answer is yes, you can. It Does start with leadership, no doubt. It starts with leadership, mission, purpose, core values, how you work together. And then this leads to all sorts of systems ranging from remuneration systems to promotion systems, et cetera, et cetera. But you can build a amazing culture with more than 150 people. No doubt, it's harder, for sure. Mm. And as I said, we chose to do it differently. But it's absolutely possible. And I would, and I, and I know some of the folks that you're you're talking to, they are running great businesses and they're great leaders and they build great cultures.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you for for clarifying that. So just going back now then to the investor world. One of the things that at the moment, I think there's a lot of confusion around these different terms, purpose, Mm -hmm. sustainability, ESG, you know, are they all different ways of talking about the same thing? We have all this very tricky politicization, particularly in the States of the whole kind of ESG agenda and people saying, well, this is woke capitalism and people are trying to impose social agendas onto business and it should be narrowly focused on making money. Personally, I feel that the whole ESG debate has got slightly skewed in that there is an emergence happening here of better ways of understanding non-financial impacts. But how do you kind of, in your own head, put these things together in a way that makes intellectual sense to you and for people listening to say, well, how would he see this? How do you connect sustainability, ESG, in your own mind? Well, it's it's a increasingly critical question. And
1: it's a critical question because we have so many uh, an alphabet soup of, of acronyms. And it is very, very confusing. So the first thing to say is that we do not believe that ESG is an outcome. And it's not an outcome because trying to understand the uh, the different factors surrounding environmental and social governance issues is complicated. And the notion that you can create a, a single score, for example, is challenging. You need to understand the, uh, the context of what you're reading and what you're learning about a business. And a lot of the issues around environmental, social governance factors can actually run counter to each other. So you could have an amazing business, which is addressing the challenges of climate, but where the governance of the organization is poor or they, how they treat the, their employees is terrible, et cetera, et cetera. So the notion of a single score we think is, is challenging. We do believe that there are tools, To help you understand businesses. So we don't recognize ESG investing. We recognize ESG as a term. We do, however, recognize sustainable investing and sustainable investing is aspiring to, to invest in businesses that are driving to a low carbon or no carbon, healthy, fair, safe and prosperous society. So that's how we think about it. We also strongly support increasing the rigor of, of how we talk about sustainable investing, how we think about the yes. term ESG. We think that there is screenwashing for sure happening. There are tools to address it, I, I'm certain, but, but being more robust, measuring more clearly, and being more clear about what precisely you mean by a sustainable investing or your ESG strategy or whatever you want to call it, you need to be very clear about what it does and what doesn't do. The other thing is people uh, assume that sustainable investing or ESG is always win-win. It's not. There's difficult trade-offs. There can be challenges for sure. And sustainable investing by itself will not solve all the world's challenges. That's the other thing, is that a lot of people have been selling sustainability or ESG as a solution to to the world's challenges. It's important. It's helpful. We need to have more of it. But if we don't have public policy that addresses these challenges, we're not going to get there. So it's a tool. Sustainable investing, capital allocation is a critical
0: part of how we build economies. But in and of itself, it's not sufficient. Right. Now, that's very helpful that you've drawn that out. And I'll come. we'll come back to it at the end of the conversation about the wider political and social issues that are here. But as I hear you speak and, and your philosophy, it, it seems to me that when you say sustainable investing, what you're really just talking about is good investing.
1: Oftentimes, when we first started our firm, we would uh, explain what we were talking about doing. And they would oftentimes people would say, oh, well, that's just common sense. And we would say, yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, uh we we think that this is investing. We don't the, – the, I think probably the, the more appropriate thing we should be saying is that we, we are labeled a sustainable investing firm. That's what we do. That's all we'll ever do. But we really think of ourselves as an investment firm. And ultimately, we aspire that, that that's what we'll all be doing, that everybody will take right. a long-term perspective Will will recognize the sustainability as a driver of economies and will recognize that these issues, environmental social governance issues, matter to the success of long-term
0: success of business and should be understood. Yeah, yeah. And then it becomes a mainstream thought rather than a, a boutique, yeah. as it were.
1: It's much more mainstream today than when we started 20 years ago, that's for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, David, a generation, when you're thinking of investing in a company and you're looking at the company, to what extent do you Try and gauge the the company's why. I mean, what's driving the people leading this business? What are they looking to achieve? Obviously, measurable outcomes and what they've achieved, their profit loss account, their ratings on the kinds of ESG and other metrics that we were just discussing are clearly there and visible. But behind that, there's a, a question of motivation, which isn't necessarily so obviously revealed in things. To what extent is it important to you to understand what that is?
1: Well, it's critical. So we we will always say that we will invest on business, we'll analyze businesses first in terms of the quality of the business itself. Those are sort of fundamental traditional corporate finance uh, factors, but there can be sustainability uh, factors associated with that as well. So if you're a energy business and hydrocarbons is the driver of your, um, your revenues, we would argue that that is not a sustainable business because of the need to decarbonize. So we'll analyze the, the quality of the business and then we'll analyze the quality of the management team and mission core values, culture are critical components of our assessment of the management team. And so, yes, it is absolutely a critical Factor in our assessment. Now, of course, it's quite difficult because mm. uh, and in culture or mission is much more than reading it on a piece of paper. It requires constant reevaluation. It, it requires talking to, to folks beyond the CEO, beyond maybe the folks who are reporting to the CEO. You need to understand the organization itself. And that's challenging often. But we do, I don't think it's very controversial. Any more to, to say culture matters, I, I forget the expression, but the I think the expression goes along the lines of culture eats strategy for lunch, something for like breakfast.
0: that. yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Going back to your your fundamental question, do, do we assess, is that an important part of our assessment of leaders? The answer is yes. Yeah. Is that our, an important part of an understanding of whether a company is gonna be successful? The answer is yes. Why? Because it often determines whether the company can be elite and whether it will be long-term successful. It doesn't necessarily mean the company will fail, though in the financial services industry, poor cultures leads to failure, for sure. There's plenty of examples of that in our in our career that we've seen. But ultimately, we're trying to find great businesses and help them grow. And the very best businesses almost always have excellent mission, purpose, and culture.
0: Yes, yeah. David, what's the biggest mistake you've made as a leader? And what did you learn? <laughs> well, I make a lot of them. Uh,
1: I think the biggest mistake <laughs> you can make for a, as a leader is is not listen to advice and and think that you you know all the answers all the time. Uh, Generation is is blessed in that we're uh, we're a partnership. We have a management committee that I happen to to lead, but I set the agenda, if you will, and I, I run the meetings. But we we do things by consensus because we feel that. In our case, eight heads or 10 heads are better than one. We think that the leaders who get themselves in in difficult circumstances don't have someone that will say no to them or doesn't have someone or some ones in more complicated businesses who can give them advice that they will take and, and understand and want to have. So it's really, I think businesses do poorly when they believe that they know all the answers and aren't willing to take advice from from others. And so one Mm -hmm. of the pieces I've learned over the years is to learn from mistakes and to be as collaborative as as possible because we think that that will result in in better outcomes. The mistakes I made have been more along the lines of... A misunderstanding uh, someone's intention. So we, we have made uh, people mistakes over the years, uh, including when I was at Goldman Sachs. But I would say uh, on a personal note, I think sometimes I I might not always have a sense of urgency on challenges. And, mm. and partially because I do try to see the good in all people or in all good of all in all circumstances. And sometimes you have to assume that the outcome is is not as good as you hoped and you need to act more quickly, whether that be a business decision or a people decision.
0: Right, well, no, thank you, thank you. I think everybody will understand and appreciate. That's a kind of, it's the inevitable corollary of caring, right? And wanting the best yeah. on a human level for people. Sometimes difficult decisions have to be made and it's not always easy. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So David, you've co-founded Generation it's been remarkably successful. So you, you've demonstrated beyond any kind of doubt, really, the, the thesis that a thoughtful approach to investing that takes sustainability totally seriously can and does deliver sustainable financial returns over time. So how does that philosophy and ethos stay in the long term within generation? So you had a bunch of people who had these beliefs and values. You co-founded it. In 30, 40 years' time, what gives you confidence that Generation Investment Management will have the same core identity? Well, uh, that's a a
1: really very important question. And um, I will tell you that we've been thinking about that since the beginning of the firm. And in fact, the name generation is based upon uh, three things. First is to generate outperformance. The second generation of energy. We knew that we were always interested in that challenge, the the transition to net zero as it's become. And third is we found a generation with the expectation that it would be passed on to the next generation and the generation app. And the way we've addressed it is really twofold. Uh, the first is we've set up our, our organizational structure to anticipate that the founders will leave at some point. Uh, hopefully we'll be a- able to continue for, for a number of years going forward, but you have to assume that there will be a transition. You have to be prepared for it economically and, and structurally. And then secondly, it's about uh, attracting great people, motivating them and growing their capabilities such that they can be excellent stewards in the months and years ahead. And that's about transition, leadership transition. And in the financial services industry in particular, transitions in boutique firms or even middle-sized firms, sometimes even big firms, transitions are terrible, truly terrible. And that results in in sometimes corporate actions, sometimes uh, failure, uh, sometimes mediocrity. So getting transition right may be the most important leadership decision we will take as a founding group and and we're thinking about that after 20 years we have to think about it as we look forward over the next 20 years and and frankly uh, we're looking at not only the next generation but we're actually looking at the next generation after that and ensuring that we have uh, folks that we can imagine being the senior partner when i retire or senior partners. And then we need to imagine who might be the senior partners after the next person or persons retire. So it is absolutely a critical part of leadership. And particularly for a mission-driven firm, where we we started this firm with the intention that it carries on. It is something that we're thinking about all along, and we must get this right. Absolutely must get this
0: right. That's absolutely fascinating that it was something that that was built in from the start that you wanted to create longevity for the business beyond the the first generation of the founder group. And it's in a way, it strikes me just hearing you say that is the kind of, you had a holistic long-term lens. In other words, you wanted to create long-term value through the investee companies that you invested in. And at the same time, you wanted to create the culture which sustained a long-term business doing that. So these are two is that right? Two aspects of the same core thought of long-term approach. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, David, for for that insight into the firm. And, you know, it's an extraordinary achievement that you've collectively made and, and are continuing to do. And I just, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to say? Because I, when I look at that, I look at what you guys have done and then you look around and you say, why isn't everybody doing this? Now, okay, I get the Dunbar number point, but is there is there more that could be done to shake up the mainstream investor world to more quickly encourage investors to be doing what you're doing well first of all we the jury is still out generation has been very fortunate
1: to to be successful to date but uh, every single Year or day, but years in our case, uh, we're reevaluated both in our public and our private equity uh, businesses, and so we we haven't claimed success by any stretch of the imagination. We do believe that our investment framework is robust, and increasingly people are copying it. So we do see more and more firms committing to sustainability, including some large firms. And it's a journey right. for the reason we talked about, but we see we see it happening for sure, yeah. and. And our job is actually to try to, um, to continue to encourage the mainstreaming of sustainability. But also, we have some huge challenges as a society. We have to transition to net zero in a very short period of time. We have to address the challenges of nature and biodiversity. And we have terrible inequality and poverty in this world. Yeah. We need public policy to address these issues. We need regulation to address these issues. But we also need capital allocation which actually we think increasingly the question of capital allocation needs to be reassessed to include both risk, return, and impact, the impact that you have Mm -hmm. and businesses have the capital allocation has. And we think that if you begin to realize that all business has impact, and so the notion of impact investing has confused us because every penny or pound or dollar you're investing has impact. And so you better understand that, you better measure it, you better report on it. And frankly, once you start yeah. reporting on it, once clients begin to say we're interested in it because it will matter to the long-term success of our our stakeholders, then you will begin to see a different way of running businesses. You'll see a different capital allocation approach from investors.
0: So do you see the emergence of the, you know, the IFRS work and everything else as being pretty fundamental to the next stage of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the future is with the accountants?
1: Well, it's it's with all of us. It's the accountants for sure, it's the capital allocators, it's the CEOs, it's the regulators, it's it's public policy. And by the way, it's not for profit sector. The NGO community is a critical,
0: critical part of these conversations. Yeah. David, just two final questions for you. What advice would you have for an emerging leader who wants to run a purpose-led business?
1: Well, uh, going back to how we started. I feel very fortunate, very blessed to work in a mission-driven firm. And my advice would be is working in a mission-driven organization is really where you should head. You should do everything you can to develop the skills so that you can if you're an entrepreneur that you can build a business that is purpose-driven or mission-driven, but you have to have the skills. You can't just decide that you're going to go do something if you're if you're not properly uh, equipped to, to build the business. Now, there's some amazing entrepreneurs that, that have a technology or, or a skill set that they have already, so they can do it at 21 or 19 or 17 or whatever it is. But a lot of us are building businesses that you need to have a, a core understanding of of how the art industry operates. And, and that sometimes is about experience. But I wouldn't change this opportunity for anything in the world. I, th- I think get going to, so I don't feel like I work. I don't ever intend to retire. Uh, sometimes you can have difficult days for sure. That's uh, not straightforward. Building businesses is hard for sure. Sustainability is hard, but to have the opportunity and the honor to, to be mission driven, that's a blessing. Mm. And I yeah. would urge yeah. everybody to find an opportunity that will allow you to not check your values at the door and to to be able to deliver purpose in in business and in your life.
0: That's great. Thank you very much. And one last question, if you had a magic wand and can change one thing in the economic system to accelerate the transition which we've spoken about and the world so desperately needs, what would it be? Put a price on carbon. Yeah that's
1: it a, that's a much more uh i would say much more micro uh answer to your question a no no mac-
0: it's exactly the same answer i got from rebecca henderson actually <laughs> and one or two others uh, there you go so you're in good company david thank you ever so much for your time and for sharing your story my pleasure
1: thank you so much for asking me to to join you charles it's, it's a pleasure of course
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blueprint for Better Business podcast. To find out more about the charity, visit blueprintforbusiness.org or use the link in the show notes. And I can be found at charleswookieassociates.com. You can subscribe to new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and do leave us a review. It helps others to find the podcast. Thank you.